Vera uh, Nazarian, an author, says it like this. A fine glass vase goes from treasure to trash the moment it's broken. That a vase is something that's very valuable, but it's vulnerable, and it can go from priceless to worthless in a second by being dropped off of a shelf carelessly. And I think when we come to God's uh, word or when we think of life, um, there's no vase that is as priceless as the vase of the community that God's trying to build. Family. Community is a vase that can go from treasure to trash in an instant. And the tough thing about community, right, it's valuable. What makes it so vulnerable is this. Um, while everybody has to work right for it to work right, one person can mess it up, right? That's the tough thing about teamwork. Uh, me and a group of guys play ball here, and uh, we were playing ball on Thursday, and so most times to start off the day, me and Joe will be team captains and we'll shoot to see who has the first pick um, and there was just 10 of us in the gym and there was this 10th guy who we knew would be last and so most times me and Joe rushed to shoot for first pick but this week I was focused because I knew that I didn't want last pick that if I had last pick regardless of how good my team was this one guy could really mess things up I got first pick, and I didn't uh, get that guy, but that's neither here nor there. The tough thing about protecting community is that it kind of feels like whack-a-mole. You can stop one problem, but as soon as you do, a bunch of other ones come up that can threaten the community. Here's just a few things that can kill a community. Somebody that comes in and spends their time looking down on everybody else. Or somebody that comes in and they don't really try to look down on folks. They spend all their time trying to make everybody else look up to them. Here's another thing that can kill a community. Uh, somebody that comes in and is very quick to walk away and to stray. Here's another thing that can kill a community. Somebody that comes in and when they see somebody walk away, they don't go after and get them. Here's another thing that can kill a community. Somebody, somebody being driven by bitterness and unforgiveness to where they push people away. Bitterness and unforgiveness, I want you to hear this, uh, it is invisible, but it is very real. It's invisible, but you know that it's there. It's like a dead rat behind a thin wall. You can't see it, but everybody comes in and says something isn't right. All of those things can kill a community, and here's what's at stake. It's not just a loss of friendship. 
Because community is more than that. Part of what makes us uh, uh, those that don't really work hard to preserve the community in the church is because our vision of it is too low. We think that the church is the place for us to get brunch friends for after we're done with what we do here. And your behavior is never going to exceed your vision. Let me help you see it like this. If you're trying to summarize the Bible or the purpose of human history in one word, do you know the word that you would have to use? Family. God is not most fundamentally a creator or a ruler. God is most fundamentally a father who creates the world and then makes a family. And then Satan comes in and attacks God's family. And so do you know what God does? God spends his time restoring his family. And then when his family strays, do you know what God does? He sends his family to go after and to restore it and create a new family called the church. And the church is God's way of establishing a family here on earth that reverses the effects of hell. Family's a big deal. And if this family is threatened to be broken apart by so many things out there, what hope do we have to solve it? Well, here's the hope that we have. Um, it seems like I've listed a lot of problems, but I really didn't. All those problems have one root. It's a bunch of branches, but the one root that sums all those things up that will kill community is pride. Not just too high a view of yourself, but too much a view of yourself. And if we see that the one thing that's wrong is pride, then do you know what we find out? It simplifies both the problem and solution. The answer is humility. But make no mistake, simple doesn't mean easy. Humility is not hard to explain, but humility is not easy to embody. So Matthew chapter 18 is all about this. How do you and I embody this humility? Humility is the glue that holds Christian community together. Make no mistake, humility is the glue that holds Christian community together. It's not our likes, it's not our dislikes, it's not our race, ethnicity, not our hobbies. Humility is the glue that holds Christian community together. Here's a little bit of context as we dive in. Um, we find ourselves in a place in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is taking a road trip with the twelve. On his way to death, Jesus is going to teach them what it really means to walk uh, or to live in the way of life. And so last week, Jesus gives the first prediction of his death, and the big point that he tries to get out is this thing of priority. I want you to hear this. Suffering 
always comes before glory. If you do not want to go through things, you do not want to see the power of God. The power of God is reserved for sufferers. But that's good news because if you're suffering, you should expect to experience the power of God if you're his. So Jesus leads them and say, uh, uh, you're not exempt from hard times, but hard times aren't going to be the end for the people of God. They're going to be the start of you seeing his glory. Now what he does is he comes here and in uh, verse 22, it says this, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised up, and they were deeply distressed. So he tells them now about the fact that he's going to die and be raised. They're distressed, and this week, instead of spending his time talking through the priority, suffering comes before glory, he's going to talk about his purpose for dying. And it starts off with what seems like this this really odd story about Jesus paying taxes and he sends Peter to fish and Peter gets two coins from out of this fish's mouth. Like what takes place there? Here's context. The temple tax at this time was used for them to fund uh, the animals and all that stuff that they would sacrifice for folks' sins. So think of it like property taxes, right? If you want nice roads and stuff like this, you got to pay the uh, tax. If you want us to have sheep and goats to uh, be able to sacrifice for your sins, you've got to pay this tax. Well, they come to him, Peter, and say, oh, is Jesus going to pay this tax? And he says, yeah. And then he goes back to Jesus and is like, hey, uh, I told him that you were. Are you going to pay this tax? And Jesus stops and says this. If there was an earthly king, would his son pay taxes? Peter's like, well, no, he's, he would be exempt. Well, who pays taxes? Well, those that are on the outside. Jesus makes this point because what he's trying to give out is, look, there's a spiritual king out here. And everybody else is paying this tax so that there can be a sacrifice for their sins. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't have any sins. I'm tax exempt. I don't have to pay that tax. But then he sends Peter to go and get this fish and there is enough money to pay his tax and his this story starts off with Jesus, hear this, paying a debt that he didn't owe so that people wouldn't be offended. Right here it starts off, and Jesus is embodying humility. And then what he's going to do is he's going to spend chapter 18 and explaining humility. Look, this is the path to greatness. This is the glue that holds Christian community together. He starts off with this. The very first thing that he does is he gives them a reset. Um, there's lots of things that are broken in life that I've learned that you can fix by turning it off and turning it back on. Um, the disciples have a broken view of greatness. 
and Jesus is going to reset it. He's just going to turn it off and turn it back on. Chapter 18, verse 1, it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, uh, so who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never hear this. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever hum humbles himself like this little child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. The disciples come in and start a conversation and they inquire about greatness, elevation, Jesus, who's going to climb up to the top of this thing called the kingdom? Who's the greatest? We have to know. We live in a world where our value comes from who's on top. Jesus, which one of us is going to be on top? And Jesus says, let me turn this thing off and turn it back on. He essentially says this, Lulu. Don't spend your whole life climbing a ladder only to realize it's leaned up against the wrong building. Y'all are starting to talk about who's great. Jesus is saying, uh, let me tell you who actually gets in. Let's not talk about elevation. Let's talk about entrance. And the only people that come in is he comes in and he brings this kid. Back in this day, kids, like in our day too, are despised, thought lightly of. Listen, listen, listen. Listen, we love our kids, but when you go to a steakhouse, you do not get them a $50 steak. You get them the $6 chicken nuggets because you say there's a difference. Y'all don't get the good pizza. Y'all get the, right, the stuff that we pop in. Jesus brings in and says, no, no, listen, listen, listen. If anybody even wants to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he's got to remove this sense that his value is going to come in him being regarded as better than somebody else from an earthly standpoint. He's got to be like this child, somebody that knows they're completely dependent. There's nothing in and of themselves that they have that will give them value or will produce their value. They have to know that they are completely and utterly dependent, right? Like he said earlier, the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. Those that know that they are bankrupt. Those that are humble. But Jesus also spends the rest of this time here clarifying this. Look, look, look. Being dependent or devalued from an earthly standpoint, um, it doesn't mean that we are disregarded by God. Look here at verse 6, right? At ver verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be uh, better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So he's going to go on and say, no, no, listen, listen, listen. But Though somebody may be disregarded from an earthly standpoint, they have such a high value in God's economy that he's going to bring up this thing about a millstone. When you went to grind grain, there was a small millstone that a lady could turn. 
but it rubbed up against this larger millstone that you couldn't turn on your own. You had to bring in a horse or a donkey. And Jesus is saying anybody who spends their time exploiting the vulnerable, it will be better if that large millstone were tied around their neck and they were thrown down. Would be a quick sinking, slow drowning, terrible fate. And he said that would be merciful compared to what I will do to them. This is a God who cares for the weak, the vulnerable, the despised. Because those are the only people that make up his family. Those that are full of pride don't want to come in. Then he's going to go on and highlight. Look, how God embodies this humility and this love. We see the story of the shepherd who goes after these sheep. And what he's trying to bring out is this. Look, 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 look. The value of that one sheep isn't highlighted when the sheep is successful and doing what it should do. Its value is brought out when it's failing. When it strays, that, look, our value is not in how well we perform. Our value is not seen in how well we perform. Our value is seen in when we fail, who's going to come after us and get us. Our value is seen in the fact that the God of the universe goes after strays. If that doesn't humble you, then I don't know what will. It, Jesus is just trying to start and explain that this humility is this otherworldly way to think about life. And it'll take Jesus's brutal death before the disciples finally understand that this is the only way to life. While they're concerned about competing and comparing, Jesus is trying to help them see uh, competition and comparison is something that will absolutely ruin the concept of family. Best picture that we can see of this is uh, by hearing the speech of somebody that was the greatest to do uh, what they did. In the NBA, there's a fraternity called the Hall of Fame. It's supposed to be a family of people that are great. Um, the undisputed greatest player to ever play the game Michael Jordan uh, is infamous, not just for the crying Jordan meme, uh, but that meme came from, hear this, his Hall of Fame speech, where everybody that looked up to him had this moment where they looked and were floored by this, like, this competition thing, it's a little much. A columnist wrote about it, not a Christian. He said uh, of this uh, speech, you know, Michael Jordan was the greatest to ever play the game. He was so rich. He traveled on private planes and jets and cars. And then he goes on and says, uh, but however he traveled after this speech, it was clear that Jordan never took the high road. 
and had his Hall of Fame speech where people are gathering to praise him for his greatness. Do you know what he does? He points out the guy, right? Jordan never got cut from a team. Somebody made the team over him. And that guy was in the audience. And Jordan points him out. Look at me now. The people that froze him out of an all-star game 20 years prior. Jordan talks about them. Look at me now. Yeah, yeah, I'm better. His kids were in the audience. And he did not say, I'm proud of you. But from stage, he looked at them and said, um, I'm sorry for you. I pity you because of the large shadow that I'll cast. And the author of this column said, and it was clear, I heard Jordan speaking as a competitor, not a father. And I want you to hear this, y'all. That's what competition or comparison does in the household of God. It gives you this narrative or this story that controls you. It makes it incredibly hard to celebrate anybody else lest they get on top of you. What comparison does is it makes you look to people and to rejoice at their downfall. Because if they fall away, if the person that you envy falls away and finally leaves the community, then now you can take their spot and things are good for you. It's this comparison, this quest for greatness, this pride that will unhinge the community of God. The only thing that will hold it together is this glue that we call humility. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the first 18 verse, or verse 14 verses, but then he goes on. After he resets their value, he goes on and he redirects their value, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, sometimes we can chase humility, uh, but we can chase it in a really prideful way. We want to be esteemed as humble so that people will praise our humility. So we kind of want this humility to kind of serve as this uh, parked, just shiny new car that folks walk by and say, man, that's great humility that you have there in the driveway. But look at what takes place in verse 15. Um, humility, if it is real, do you know where it goes? It goes into hostility. If humility is a car, it would be a car that constantly drives into oncoming traffic. One of my favorite genres of movies, like the, the like spy movies or the like cop movies, Bad Boys 3, you know, the Bourne movies and all that stuff. And what you can be assured of is in every one of those movies, there's going to be one scene where in order to chase the bad guy, they've got to drive into oncoming traffic. And I think what Jesus is trying to prepare us for um, is that if you are a Christian and you want to be a part of God's family, 
The very first thing that you need to have is humility. The next thing that you need to know is that where God is going to direct you to drive your humility is into oncoming traffic. Look here at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, listen, they did something wrong to you. Objectively, it's not, I'm sorry that you felt this way by what I said. It is, they did something sinfully wrong to you. Look at who he puts the onus on to make things right. You go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. What he starts off is after he resets our value structure to where we prize humility is a good thing, he gives, look, us as a church, marching orders. And the marching orders is that you as a church, you have to chase down the bad guy. But look, chasing down the bad guys is not about punishing the bad guys. It's about restoring them. You see verse 15? If somebody sins against you, here's what you don't do. Humility is not passivity. It's not you saying, well, I'm not going to make a big deal and it's okay, I forgave them and I'm just going to rub this out of my mind. Because even if you forgave them, they are in sin. In unrepentant sin. So even if you don't hold a a grudge against them, there is something that has the potential to distance them and God. And if you really loved them, then here's what you would do is you would say, man, look, Sin is the thing that makes us stray. Sin is what God had to come and save us from. We were lost, but we're found. And so when that sin takes place against me, I'm not going to make me the main person of that story. I'm going to go to you and confront you. We like to assign these qualitative values to action. Confrontation is bad. Yeah, letting things roll off of your back is good. Uh, And the Bible doesn't do that. It's going to spend its time assigning good or bad, not just to actions, but attitudes. What's your posture? The posture of the whole church should be to... Know how important the family of God is, so much so that what he brings out here in the instruction is this. Look, interpersonal conflict between one set of people, I want you to hear this, is everybody's business. If you do not want people to be in your business, 
you do not want to be a Christian. I don't know how to say it any more plain. And what I don't mean is, you know, people all in your bank account knowing how much money you make, how much you paid for the car. That's not what I mean. You know, the unique thing that takes place here, the unique thing uh, uh, about the church or the family of God uh, is not that once you come into the church, there's nobody that's going to sin against you. Stay in the church, leave the church any way that you go, people are going to sin against you. What's unique is that God has put the church in place to protect and preserve these relationships so that even though sin finds its way into the church, the church is preserved by God so as to not feel the devastating effects of sin. And so here's what I mean. Um, there's a lot of places in the world that you can go to make friends, right? The church has not cornered the market on starting friendship. Do you know what God does do in the church, though? You know, loneliness in the world that we come uh, or we live in uh, doesn't usually uh, begin with the fact that somebody just can't make friends. Loneliness often comes to the forefront when somebody has a close group of friends and then there becomes this unresolvable conflict and your friends become your enemies and now you have nobody else who wants to make it their business to ensure that you're at peace. But with the church, that's different. With the people of God, that's different. That we know how priceless this vase is. And so when it falls down and breaks, what we don't do is trash it all. What we do is say, all right, everybody grab a piece. Everybody put this glue together and let's make sure that we stand this thing back up. That's, that's the safety that we have here. Leaving a church should feel like, hear this, um, trying to unsubscribe from email. You know how it's like, I thought I pressed that unsubscribe. I'm sure that I did. But res like Wayfair, I still find messages from them. It's, no, 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 look. I was mad. All these folks, they did me wrong. And, and, and I, tried to, I tried to walk away. But they kept on coming. And somebody kept on coming. And I thought it was over. And I would like to say that it was over. But I know in my heart I was bitter. And I was in a room where I tried to mask that stench. But somebody said, there's something that's not right here. Let's make it right. And they won't let you leave. The beauty is that when humility runs into hostility, kind of find this place where what we as a church want to do is one. Uh, we don't want to let anybody run away. But two, in humility, we realize that we can't hold anybody hostage. 
And that's what he gets to at the end. Like, yo, if there's this sin and there's this conflict and you go by yourself and they don't hear you. Well, maybe things are just so far gone with you that they need two or three other people. So bring them along because at the end of the day, remember, the, the goal is to win them. Well, if they don't hear it, then bring the whole church. And if you have somebody that finds themselves in a church where they acknowledge that the Spirit of God uniquely rests on all of us, and they are unwilling to listen to the counsel and advice of everybody else saying the same thing, do you know what you have? Somebody that is incredibly prideful. You have somebody that lacks the humility that is required to enter into the front door. And so it's in that case where what Christ will say here is like, yeah, church, you have the authority of heaven, right? Whatever you bind on uh, earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, those are judicial terms. Saying, Yo, you have the authority of heaven as a church to say, maybe, just maybe, um, you're a dead branch on this vine. Maybe you've never really been plugged into the life that comes from God, in which case we actually do you a disservice reaffirming the profession that you make. Maybe it's best to, hey, if, if you just want to disagree with all of us about this, maybe it's best that, yeah, you just, let's all just uh, uh, affirm that, that there is no us. Because us, we agree about this thing that's called sin and humility and it seems like you're already on the outskirts. Now, I bring all of that up to get to what I feel like is the main thrust and the main point of this passage. The main thrust of this, and I think so often we get lost in the first half, the instruction the process, the procedure, what it is that we are to do, and we miss out on the inspiration, and that's the thing that really changes us. C.S. Lewis is going to put it like this. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have somebody to forgive. Instruction is nothing without inspiration. Even the best intentions evaporate in the heat of conflict. Do you know why? Because when you're in conflict with somebody, the heat of that, it feels real. It feels as real as being barefoot on a summer sidewalk and people tell you just cool down and you say, I can't. This is real. I've really been offended. I've really been hurt. And what you find is that as long as your pain and hurt and your pain and hurt is the thing that you rehearse in your head, forgiveness is never going to happen. It's never going to take place. In the face of something so real, and hear this, so wrong. 
until what Jesus has done for you is more real than what other people have done to you, you will never forgive. And the problem is you see them face to, to face and you have to take what Jesus did for you by faith. How do we do, how do we really change? I think that's what this last story is here for. One of the most important things on any road trip or journey, especially if you are driving into unfamiliar territory, is you have to refuel. You do not want to run out of gas. And one of the things that I've learned taking long road trips in Texas, where there are miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, and miles of road with nothing, is that you should never take a gas station for granted. Regardless of how much you have in you, whenever you get there, you got to top off, you got to refuel. So what Jesus does is he tells this story. And I'm going to repeat this story to you and help you understand the power of story. Verse 21 starts off and says this, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Seven being the number of completion. That many times should I forgive somebody for the same thing? That seems like a high ceiling. And Jesus says, it may seem like a high ceiling, uh, but let me change that high ceiling into a sunroof. Let me replace your high ceiling with no ceiling. I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Let me explain to you what that means. A talent was 6,000 denarii. One denarii was a day's wages. So in order to pay back one talent, it would likely take you 20 years of work. Jesus will use 10,000 talents because that was the biggest number that they would use in conversation. This is meant to be hyperbolic. If Jesus was in our day and time and he was up here right now, he would say a, a king said to a guy, come and pay me, you owe me a zillion dollars. Listen, and I don't, I say all of that because from the outset, it's, it's this debt that he can't pay. And look at what he asks for. 26, at this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me. I will pay you everything. Have you ever gone out to eat with people who are not in your tax bracket? Um, and that bill comes out and you see your bill? And you know you can't pay it, and you start to do this. Man, where'd I put my wallet? Ah, can... This is a debt he can't pay. And do you know what he asks for? Time. Be patient. And do you know what the master does? He says, Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the Lord. He asks for patience. He asks for one more chance. But instead, do you know what he gets? Pardon. If you 
forgiven of a zillion dollar debt. Robert Smith just paid off $40 million for Morehouse grads. And do you know what took place when a debt that big is paid? You become the talk of the town. So then what this guy does is he finds somebody that owes him much less. Do you know what the guy asks him for? Patience. Do you know what he does? He grabs him by the neck and throws him in jail. And what this story makes increasingly clear is that if you cannot extend forgiveness, you have never really embraced the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness embraced, it comes out of you. So the end of the story, the king finds this guy, and do you know what he says to him? Verse 32. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, look, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? Do you know what he does? He says, um, you were living with the wrong narrative in mind. You were living, rehearsing his offenses against you and not yours against me. Because if you rehearsed yours against me, you would have been more than happy to forgive him. But there's a narrative that's controlling your life, and it's a prideful one because you and your offenses are at the center. The message that Jesus is trying to get across is this. You are free to be bitter and hold a grudge with somebody as soon as their offenses towards you exceed yours towards God. And if you're ever going to be honest about that, you have to be humble. The only people that are not honest are people that are prideful. Well, I know what God did, but it doesn't matter. I think Jesus ends with this story. The same reason why this passage started with him, hear this, paying a debt that he didn't owe. Because I think one day, all of us are going to stand in front of God. And do you know what God will say to all of us? I gave you a zillion breaths. You didn't earn not one of them. Regardless of how patient I am with you, you can never pay them back. And none of us would be so brash as to ask God to wipe out that debt. What you and I say is, God, just, just give me time. I promise I'll make this right. Give me another chance. But what God in his grace has done is he sent his son, hear this, who used all zillion of his breaths, to do everything that God would have. Jesus did not incur the same debt that you and I did. Oh, but he felt, he felt the heat of conflict. 
He felt the heat of those nails go through the nerves, the tiny nerves in his hands. He felt the sun on his bruised back that reminded him, hear this, he stepped into a conflict that was none of his business. And Jesus embodies this humility for us, pays this debt that he did not owe because all of us, because of our sin, have incurred a debt that we couldn't pay. And he forgives us. You ask God for patience, and he gives you pardon. And do you know what changes us? Do you know what gives us the ability to embody this humility that's going to keep this community together? Not nice words, not instruction but a new narrative. What is the most important narrative? The most important narrative is not what others have done to us. The most important narrative is what God has done for us. The greatness of what God has done. And I bring all of that up to say, listen, none of you are ever, none of us will ever scowl our way into forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't work that way. It doesn't work with, I know they did this against me, and I'm still mad and angry and hot, but through my grit, I'm going to try hard. I forgive you. That's not how forgiveness works. If anybody ever forgives, they smile their way into forgiveness. Do you know why? Because we don't think about the debt that somebody owes us. The narrative, the storyline that controls us, that has to control us and shape us is what God has done for us. Hear this. That's why we do this every week. If you've been here with us for the beginning, you already know at the end I'm going to come to what God has done in Jesus. I don't have anything new. We don't need anything new. We need to rehearse the old stuff because we forget. So we come here to rehearse, to be reminded about what God has done. That's why on Sunday mornings, listen, we come in here and we don't say, I was a long night and I was tired and I stayed up late. The most important thing is that I get my rest. Hear this. Not that we can't do that from time to time, but even the discipline of getting up when we're tired to come, it's an act of humility and says there's something more important than what's going on in my life right now. There is a story that I need to be drawn into and reminded of. There is a gas station that I have to refuel because I don't know when the next one's going to come up. That's why we confess sin as a people of God. That's why we willingly subject ourselves to being sorrowful and don't just gloss over things in the past. Because the more that we do that, the more we are really reminded of the greatness of the debt that we owe God. But the more that we're reminded of the greatness of the debt that we owe him, the more glad we're made about the fact that he actually forgave us. That's why we read the Bible and constantly come back to this and work hard and try to push through because every day we're saying, 
my life is going to be controlled by somebody's narrative. I want to make sure that it's one that makes me glad. I want to make sure it's one that gives me the freedom to bear up under the heat of conflict and not be bitter towards those that cause that. I just say all of that to say, y'all, our refueling has to be a rhythm. What are, what are your spiritual rhythms, the things you put in place to constantly remind me there should be a narrative that controls my life, a narrative where I'm not the main character, but somebody else is. And if we do that, in the very act of obeying what God has called us to do, it's cultivating inside of us a humility that lets us find our way in a community that's constantly trying to be ripped apart. God uses that to bring you and I together, and I want you to hear this. Community is not just the glue that holds the community together, but this humility now becomes like this flytrap where the glue holds us together, but the glue's on the outside of this thing too. So anybody that finds their way into proximity of the people of God finds something incredibly sticky. I'm closing with this one quote from Dr. Martin Luther King as we celebrate the amazing work that God did in and through his life. Listen to what he says. The words will be here on the screen. I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we'll still love you. Look, we cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good, right? So we're going to confront you when you sin. And just watch how he lists these very real sins that are done against them. So throw us in jail. And we'll still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we'll still love you. Send your, hood, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us. And we'll still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we're not fit culturally or otherwise for integration but we'll still love you but be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer and one day we will win our freedom we will not only win freedom for ourselves we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double
Humility is the glue that holds this community together. Humility is also the glue that attracts wandering people who are searching for a lasting family. This is what God has called us into. And he's provided you a narrative that will never be obsolete to refuel you. Make it a real rhythm of your life, in your families, with your kids, with your friends. And let's be amazed by what God does in and through his church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for your kindness, for your grace, for your glory. Uh, Lord, you give us everything that we need for life and godliness. We pray that in humility we would take you at your word that we would obey, that the rhythms of our life would change, and that as the rhythms of our life change, we, your church, would create beautiful music that people can't help but be drawn into. Father, do this for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.